God is not an idolater. The God of the Bible has never and will never bow to idols. To the core of his infinite being, God hates idolatry and by nature is entirely free of any and every form of idolatry. Now this means that God labors with omnipotent power and holy zeal to proclaim and to display his glory. Because he is pure, because he is truth, because he is love, God cannot share his glory with any other God because there is no other God. Since he is not an idolater then, God must magnify the glory and the splendor of his name. Now that sounds a bit theoretical. We have to think about it a bit. But let me illustrate it to make it perhaps a bit more simple. I think we can see this just in our own natures. Let's say that you rent one day a large yacht and you travel for vacation to a remote island in the Caribbean. We can imagine, can't we? As you come to this little island, there's a film crew that is shooting a movie on this island. And you see that they have lined up there several boats that they've been carrying supplies out to this island. And you notice as you're passing them to go around to another part of the island that these guys that are supplying for this movie are really cheating a little bit. They want their bosses further up on the island not to know what they're up to and they stick mannequins behind the helm of these large boats. And they take off. And you see this with a bit of a smile on your face and kind of figuring out what's going on here. But there's just these mannequins on these several boats up against the shore here. And you move on to another place of this small island to begin your vacation. But somewhere where that film crew is filming in the center of this small island, there is an explosion. And you see that eruption and you're shocked by it. You're still in your boat and running across toward the water is, is this crew. And they see the boats that are there. Those boats are filled, the gas tanks are full, and this fire is so hot that if they run to those boats, the gas tanks will ignite and explode and all of these people will be dead. And here you are out in the water in your yacht, and what are you gonna do? These people take a look at you as they're running somewhat close to you and then they're going to run off in the other direction of their boats, which they trust more, not knowing that at the helm of those boats are mannequins, dummies. Wouldn't you, in that spot, knowing the truth, knowing that those boats are not a means of rescue but are, in fact, death traps sitting there on the shore, Will you not yell at those people and say, over here, come to my boat. There's nobody in those boats. Come over here. You've got to come for rescue. You're not going to get away if you go there. Well, we sense that, don't we? We understand what the situation would be. We know those people are going to die in those boats and that they're not real people at the helm of those boats. By the time they get there, they'll explode and be gone. 
So those other boats look like a source of safety, but their captains as mannequins are not real, and although they seem to promise safety, they're death traps. You are the only real captain on this island. You are the only real way off the island. And so you announce it and yell it and scream to say, come over to me. I can rescue you. Now, just in a little sense in that illustration, we understand this person, so to speak, boasting in his glory. I boast in who I am. I say that I'm the rescue. I say that I'm the one to deliver. How much more does God have a holy obligation to insist that he alone is God? And in a most dramatic fashion, that is just what he does when he unleashes the ten plagues upon Egypt in Exodus chapter 7 and following. He is screaming to the world, I alone am God. All of the other gods are mannequins and their means of rescue are death traps. You must come to me because I am the only rescue off this island. There are times when he whispers that truth and there are times when he screams it. And in the book of Exodus, he screams it over and over again. He glorifies his name. He exalts himself as the only Savior. These plagues were not intended, let's remember, to serve as a fireworks display for our entertainment. Nor were they intended merely to liberate the Israelites from slavery. Rather, the issue is that the most powerful king, ruler of the most powerful nation on earth at that time, has defied the Lord's sovereignty and power. He has stood up to the only God and said, you are not the only God. In fact, you're not a God that matters. Remember chapter 5 and verse 2 where he said, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Chapter 6, notice there in your text at verse 6. Chapter 6 and verse 6, this is what God then intends to do, to display His glory because He must. Verse 6, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Then you will know that I am the Lord. What is God doing? In all of these plagues, He is seeking to lift up and exalt His name as the only God, the ruler of heaven and earth. And that theme continues, chapter 7 and verse 5, as the call is made to Pharaoh. Chapter 7 and verse 5, And the Egyptians, says the Lord, will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. Let's not shortchange the account. This is what God is saying. I want you to know that I am the Lord. Over and over we see this theme repeated. It's found in chapter 7 and verse 17 as well. 7.17, this is what the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. You might want to make marks in your Bible just to note these various places where this theme is repeated over and over again. Chapter 8 and verse 10, we find it again. Tomorrow, Pharaoh says, you can go, Moses replies, 8.10, It will be as you say, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. Verse 22 of chapter 8. 
Verse 22 of chapter 8, But on that day I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there, so that you will know that I am the Lord, that I, the Lord, am in this land. Over and over this theme is repeated, and we will see it today where we pick up as well. And the display of God's glory just continues with now the third of three plague cycles. Do we have that slide available there? Let's look at this just one more time. We have looked at the first two cycles uh, last week. It was a fairly ambitious task, wasn't it? But we looked at these first six, and we notice here in the first cycle that there are three plagues. And there is a pattern as you look at Moses' interaction with Pharaoh on the far right column. There is a morning confrontation by the Nile. The second plague starts with a confrontation in Pharaoh's palace. And then the third, there is no confrontation. There's nothing said. We see that cycle repeated a second time in plagues 4, 5, and 6. The very same confrontations with Moses. And then the third cycle, which we look at today, the very same pattern. We begin with a morning confrontation then a confrontation in Pharaoh's palace, and the ninth and final in this threefold plague pattern. There is no confrontation, culminating, of course, in the tenth and final plague, the ultimate plague of the death of the firstborn. So we see this very carefully constructed scheme that God is using here. And why is He doing this? Again, to show that he is in charge of all that is happening. This isn't haphazard events. This is laid out very carefully by the Lord to present to the Egyptians and to the Israelites and to us that God is truly the Lord. That he rules over heaven and earth. So we pick up on the seventh plague today at chapter 9 and verse 13. Chapter 9 and verse 13 Then the Lord said to Moses, Get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. As with the first plague in cycles 1 and 2, again, then we see here that Moses confronts Pharaoh in the morning, probably at the Nile, though in this one that is not stated. But this third cycle will be more severe than the previous two cycles. And Egypt will be devastated in all of this. God calls Moses here, the NIV translates this, to confront Pharaoh. It's interesting here, the Hebrew word is actually to stand before Pharaoh. Remember as we think back to verse 11 of chapter 9, the magicians could not stand before Pharaoh because of the boils that had plagued them. They were unable to stand before Pharaoh. Now God says immediately to Moses, you go stand before Pharaoh. They can't stand before him. They are done with their magic arts, but Moses and God are just beginning. Go back and stand before Pharaoh and let him know what is going to take place. Say to him, let my people go so that they may worship me. Now remember in all this, a little bit of repetition from last week as we continue with these plagues, but remember from the start of negotiations between Moses and Pharaoh, God has commanded Pharaoh to let the Israelites go on a three-day journey so that they may worship the Lord. And that's all that's really said. It's not spelled out that God obviously intends for full liberation. But they just keep it at this kind of polite negotiating level, if we could call it that. Softer terms are good things 
for those who negotiate. So a teenager might ask mom and dad, can I borrow the car keys? That's kind of a softer term than saying something like, can I take your car and drive it out on the road without you in it? It's just, it's just a little too harsh, you know, but to say, can I have the keys to the car? Now that teen's obviously not asking to just dangle the keys from their finger. They want something much more. And that's a bit what Moses is saying here in all of this. And what God is saying, let my people go worship me three days into the desert. But all along, of course, meaning that there should be full liberation. Verse 14, this time, says the Lord in warning, if not, if you do not let my people go, verse 14, I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. There it is again. Why am I doing this? To liberate my people. I'm doing this so that they can go worship me, but I am doing this above all to declare the glory of my name, that you will know that there is no one like me in all the earth. This repeated theme of the singular glory and holiness of God. Verse 15, For by now, says the Lord, I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague that would have wiped you off the earth. But, notice it again, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. There it is again. God's not hiding in the weeds on this. He is saying, to go back to our earlier illustration, I'm the only boat on this shore that's going to leave it. I am the only God, and it is my obligation, because I am a God of truth and love, to tell you this. I alone am God, and my name will be proclaimed in all the earth as God alone. So Pharaoh had long insisted that the Israelites existed for Egypt's purposes and glory. But God sets the record straight and He informs Pharaoh, you exist for my glory. I have raised you up and I have put you in that seat on that throne for this very day that my name might be exalted through you, though you fight me and resist me and despise my authority. You're here for my purposes, says the Lord. So let's get this straight, Pharaoh. I've put you on your throne to display my glory, not yours. The issue at hand is that you, Pharaoh, verse 17, however, still set yourself against my people and will not let them go. And that, Pharaoh, is a problem. I have told you to let them go. You continue to resist me. My people have been your slaves, but that was by my design, not yours. And they are my people, and I will liberate them. Remember Genesis chapter 15. They will be in Egypt for 400 years. And they will be enslaved there in Egypt, says God, the author of history. I have raised you up, Pharaoh, for this purpose. Not to enslave my people as such, but that I might be glorified through you, my enemy. Verse 18. Therefore... At this time tomorrow, I will send the worst hailstorm that has ever fallen on Egypt from the day it was founded till now. Give an order now to bring your livestock and everything you have in the field to a place of shelter, because the hail will fall on every man and animal that has not been brought in and is still out in the field, and they will die. The warning is simple, it is clear, and the only safety is to heed that warning. Verse 20. 
Those officials of Pharaoh who feared the word of the Lord hurried to bring their slaves and their livestock inside. But those who ignored the word of the Lord left their slaves and their livestock in the field. Now, isn't it just largely unimaginable to think that somebody in Egypt could be found who wouldn't listen to the voice of God by this time? It's it's unbelievable. After all drinkable water has been polluted, after an infestation of frogs and gnats followed by flies, and a plague on all livestock and an outbreak of boils, and there are still people who are not getting the idea and are still not respecting the word of the Lord. But remember, remember this and never forget it. I say it all the time because I hope no one ever forgets this. Sin is never, ever rational. Sin is never, ever rational. The stupidest of all human thoughts is that we can ignore the word of God and get away with our sin. We can't. And such thinking is utter insanity. Now God is a God of mercy. He is a God of forgiveness. We sound those themes just as loudly. But we do not get away with sin. You do not despise the word of God and get away with it. It's always irrational. But there are those in Egypt as there are those in America and as there are those among us who think irrationally and believe that sin is something that we can exercise without consequences. We cannot. There were those in Egypt. Then, in response to his promise, verse 22, the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward the sky so that the hail will fall all over Egypt, on men and animals and on everything growing in the fields of Egypt. When Moses stretched out his staff toward the sky, the Lord sent thunder and hail and lightning flashed down to the ground. So the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. Hail fell and lightning flashed back and forth. It was the worst storm in all the land of Egypt since it had become a nation. Throughout Egypt, hail struck everything in the fields, both men and animals. It beat down everything growing in the fields and stripped every tree. There's an interesting phrase here that sort of pops out of nowhere, and that is a reference to that which grows in the fields of Egypt. There seems perhaps to be a very direct reflection of Genesis 1, verses 11 and 12 here. Remember that it was the fields that produced the vegetation with which God blessed the earth. This devastating hail is destroying that which God has blessed. That which he has brought upon humanity through his creative powers to bless and to feed and to bring pleasure to his people is now being crushed and destroyed by this hail. This devastating hail did not destroy every vestige of vegetation, 10.5 will bring out, but it certainly hit with devastating results. Trees were shattered. Vegetation was crushed. Animals and people were killed in the fields. God created ultimately to produce life. It's all now dying. And this is to say nothing of the terror that overwhelmed the hearts of those in the midst of such a devastating storm. By this devastation, Israel is brought to her knees once again. 
And this devastation, however, and this fear bypasses the people of God. They are spared, verse 26. The only place it did not hail was the land of Goshen, where the Israelites were. They're spared this trial as God protects his people. Verse 27, then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron. This time I have sinned, he said to them. Now that's a twist, isn't it? He's never been here before. I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Pray to the Lord, for we have had enough thunder and hail. I will let you go. You don't have to stay any longer. You can leave. Now, we tend to read the phrase, I have sinned, as Christians, and we should, of course. But I don't think that the idea here, and the further context will bear out, I don't think that Pharaoh is saying, I have sinned morally against the Lord and I repent of my sin, as we might think of it. He's not genuinely repenting. I think he's probably saying something like a pagan would say, I am clearly not on the right side here. This phrase, I have sinned, was a typical phrase used at that time, even by pagans. And it had the idea that I'm not on the side of the power here. Yahweh is a powerful God, and I've been resisting him, and that's wrong for me to do. So please pray for me, Moses, and I will let the Israelites go. I promise you. Verse 29, Moses replied, When I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands in prayer to the Lord. The thunder will stop and there will be no more hail, so you may know that the earth is the Lord's. There it is again. Once again, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But I know that you and your officials still do not fear the Lord. The Lord God. They refuse to glorify God as God. Now, parenthetically, Moses is going to comment on the results of this plague at verse 31. What happened with this devastating hail? The flax and barley were destroyed since the barley had headed, that is, had come to bud, and the flax was in bloom. The weed and spelt, however, were not destroyed because they ripened later. The flax was used to make cloth and barley cheap bread, but wheat and spelt sources of higher quality breads were spared in this destruction, in this problem. Verse 33, Then Moses left Pharaoh and went out of the city. He spread out his hands toward the Lord, and the thunder and hail stopped, and the rain no longer poured down on the land. No man can stop a hailstorm, but a man serving the purposes of God can. But sadly, verse 34, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had stopped, he sinned again. He and his officials hardened their hearts. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not let the Israelites go, just as the Lord had said through Moses. You've heard of the foxhole conversion. As the bullets are flying, and death is stalking the soldier, there is a prayer. I will get my act together. I will serve you if you just get me out of this pinch. Pharaoh is the ultimate foxhole soldier. He is constantly saying, here, from here to the end, I'll let you go. I'll obey the word of God. I'll let you go. But as soon as the firing stops, he comes out of his hole and changes his mind time after time after time. As is so often the case, God relieves the pressure and the sinner withdraws his commitment to change. As with the second plague of the first two cycles, now God will again send Moses to Pharaoh's court to warn of another plague. Plague number eight is a plague of locusts. 
Verse 1 of chapter 10, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may perform these miraculous signs of mine among them, that you may tell your children and grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them, and that you may know that I am the Lord. There it is again. God intended the Exodus to stand for the rest of salvation history as proof of his glory and his power. God sovereignly hardens Pharaoh's heart so that, as verse 2 says, you may tell your children and your grandchildren how I dealt harshly with the Egyptians. Amazing thought there. I have hardened Pharaoh's heart so that your children will come to know me. Is really the logic here. The most important subject in any child's education is the history of salvation. The most important subject in any child's education is the history of salvation. God is no freak show, some circus misfit performing miracles upon demand. God performs miracles sparingly, and He intends for generations of His people to know Him on the sheer force of these historical acts. One generation saw the Exodus, and they were to convey to their children the mighty acts of God. And you know what? Their children were to know God through that history. It's an amazing thought. Just as good as being there and watching these plagues is hearing the word of God from a generation that has gone before and seen his acts. In like manner, there were only a limited number of people who saw Jesus in resurrected form. Not many people can claim to have seen the risen Christ. Yet we can genuinely know God on the force of these historical reports, illumined as they are by the Spirit of God. In fact, God intends that we do so. And it certainly says to those of you who are here as parents, what a tremendous responsibility and opportunity we have to teach salvation history to our children. To bring to that next generation the words of what happened in the past, that they by those words may know God. Those of you who teach children in this church in whatever capacity, be it in Sunday school or vacation Bible school or in some other way, do we recognize the unbelievable responsibility that is ours to proclaim the glories and the goodness of God to the next generation. And all of us, by word and deed, are teaching the next generation the truth of who God is. He doesn't come down every day and display His glory in this way, but there is an empty tomb. And we have received that message from those who saw that empty tomb, and we pass on to the next generation the mighty acts of God in history that the next generation may know the Lord. They know Him through our words. They know Him through the history of God in this world. So Moses and Aaron, in response, verse 3, went to Pharaoh and said to him, This is what the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, says, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go so that they may worship me. 
The slaves rebuke their taskmaster in obedience to their heavenly master here in verse 3. Then in verse 4 we read, If you refuse to let them go, the message of God, I will bring locusts into your country tomorrow. They will cover the face of the ground so that it cannot be seen. They will devour what little you have left after the hail, including every tree that is growing in your fields. They will fill your houses and those of all your officials and all the Egyptians, something neither your fathers nor your forefathers have ever seen from the day they settled in this land till now. Then Moses turned and left Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't tell him to leave, he just leaves. And there might be nothing that the Egyptians feared more than locusts. Locust infestations could wipe out a country's food supply very quickly. It could turn you into a beggar nation. The threat of such a visitation finally cracked the resistance of Pharaoh's officials. They get worried about this. And they say in verse 7 to Pharaoh, how long will this man be a snare to us? Let the people go so that they may worship the Lord their God. Do you not yet realize that Egypt is ruined? For a moment, their counsel moves Pharaoh. Verse 8, Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go worship the Lord your God, he said. But just who will be going? Now the negotiations begin to get down into the nitty gritty. It's not just a matter of Here's the keys to the car. It's where are you going with it? And what are you doing with it? Verse 9, Moses answered, We will go with our young and our old, with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. So from one angle, Moses simply delivers God's word. From another angle, however, we notice here that Moses graciously dictates terms to Pharaoh. It's amazing. turnaround. We're going to go with everything, Pharaoh. Lock, stock, and barrel, as we say it. Representing a nation of slaves, Moses clearly serves a greater master than Pharaoh. Pharaoh responds in verse 10, The Lord be with you if I let you go along with your women and children. Clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord since that's what you have been asking for. Then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. Pharaoh understands that Moses wants full liberation even though Moses has never really put it this way. But now Pharaoh tries to play around with the words. It's kind of like, again, back to our teenager asking for the keys of the car and a parent saying, yes, you can have the keys for the car, but you just hold the keys. That's all I mean here. There's something else in view. And again, Pharaoh has refused to submit then to the sovereignty of God. And again, God responds to display that he alone is God. Verse 12 And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over Egypt so that locusts will swarm over the land and devour everything growing in the fields and everything left by the hail. Here we go again. Verse 13, Moses stretches out his staff over Egypt and the Lord makes an east wind blow across the land all that day and all that night. By morning, the wind had brought the locusts. I mean, put yourself in the scene. Here they come. They invaded, verse 14, all of Egypt and settled down in every area of the country in great numbers. Never before had there been such a plague of locusts, nor will there ever be again. They covered all the ground until it was black. They devoured all that was left after the hail, everything growing in the fields and the fruit on the trees. Nothing green remained on tree or plant in all the land of Egypt. And wow, is there a lot to fill in between those lines. There's no food in this whole country anywhere. 
There are still some animals that are left, but there's really nothing left now to Egypt at all. Imagine what was going on behind the scenes. In verse 16, Pharaoh quickly summoned Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now there is another new development. I've sinned against you. Now forgive my sin once more and pray to the Lord your God to take this deadly plague away from me. It's funny how Pharaoh knows so clearly where to go for help. He runs to Moses and Aaron again. They're the ones to talk to. Moses then left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord, verse 19, And the Lord changed the wind to a very strong west wind, which caught up the locusts and carried them into the Red Sea. Not a locust was left anywhere in Egypt. On command, God drowns the army of locusts in the Red Sea. The Egyptian army should take careful note of the power of God. But sadly, once again, her leader rejects the Lord. Verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let the Israelites go. That sea is now prepared for him. But first, there are two more plagues. And this one ending this three cycle, three plagues in three cycles. Number nine is darkness. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward the sky so that darkness will spread over Egypt. Darkness that can be felt. There was darkness with the locust. That darkness is going to get a lot worse. A darkness that can be felt. So Moses, verse 22, stretched out his hand toward the sky and total darkness covered all Egypt for three days. No one could see anyone else or leave his place for three days, yet all the Israelites had light in the places where they lived. As with the third plague of the first two cycles, there is no warning again here issued to Pharaoh. In the first plague, God strikes the Nile, the source of life in the Egyptians' viewpoint, the river that they worshipped. Now, here in this ninth plague, he blocks out the sun. The sun god Ray was worshipped by the Egyptians as the chief among her gods. And now God has shut down Ray. We don't know how this darkness came. If this was just purely miraculous or as some conjecture it is a sandstorm that had such high levels of electricity that it lifted the dust right off the earth. And so right above the heads of the Egyptians was this hovering dust that formed a blanket over the sky and shut out all light. We don't know. It really doesn't matter. What is far more important are the theological implications that God turned off the lights. Everything is chaos in Egypt. And it brings us back to the Creator. In Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, everything is in the Hebrew text, tohu abohu. Everything is without form and void. Everything's disastrous and chaotic. It's all there. The materials are there and created by God in Genesis 1.1. But nothing has form. It's all chaotic and it sits there in darkness. And where does God enter into the picture? Genesis 1.3. Let there be light. Here God says, let there be darkness. And the land of Egypt is covered in a shroud 
of darkness. The Creator God is, as one has put it, performing creative reversals. He can bring light out of darkness, and He can bring darkness out of light. He controls all. Pharaoh again summons Moses and says, verse 24, Go worship the Lord. Even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. It's absolutely ridiculous, of course. But he's locked into his way, isn't he? To the bitter end, he holds on to the delusion that he can somehow keep God's people for himself. If he keeps the herds, well, number one, that's some food that they need right about now. And number two, Israel's going to come back to get their flocks, their herds. But Moses said, verse 25, in honor of the Lord's word, you must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. I mean, it's really getting ugly. Egypt's hardly got any food left, and here the Israelites are going to walk away into the desert and slaughter animals for sacrifice. Our livestock must go, says Moses. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. Pharaoh should be far more frightened by Moses' threat than Moses ever was by Pharaoh's. Moses, indeed, will never initiate a meeting again with Pharaoh. Never voluntarily come initiating a meeting with Pharaoh. And with that, Pharaoh's hope is extinguished. The sky is dark and lights are out for Pharaoh. The mercy of God in its extension to him is done. I'll never be back on my own initiative, Moses says. Now, We need to continue to labor here. There's an awful lot of text here, and we must consider this text to see what, in fact, happened historically. But there's some pretty hard things to consider here. And one of them, chief among perhaps all, is this God hardening Pharaoh's heart idea. How can God harden someone's heart, that is, make him insensitive to what God's word is, and be a just God? What is going on here? Many argue that if Pharaoh's human freedom is restricted, then he is nothing more than a puppet on a string, and therefore that can't be, so we've got to come up with another answer. One commentator that I read taking this view said this, These events would not redound much to the glory of God if it were only a matter of God's outwitting a wind-up toy. His point being, if it's God who hardens Pharaoh's heart, is there any victory in God proving his glory? When this man has no choice in the matter, well, it's really prejudicing the case from the start. The presupposition of this commentator is that if God determines what a person will do, that person is not free to act and is therefore a robot. Well, the answer that I would submit to this dilemma is that God determines all outcomes and people freely choose what God has determined. It's both and. It's not either or. With perfect knowledge, God knows how a person will act in any and every situation, and God orchestrates the circumstances of life such that everyone chooses to act as God has determined. 
They act with full reason and personal desire to do what God has determined will happen. Now, yes, that's uncomfortable. That doesn't work real well with our thoughts and our reason at times, but the opposite works a lot less, and it detracts from the glory of God. God doesn't play with wind-up toys. I will concur. But God does determine what happens in this world. He is never sitting back wondering what's going to happen. He knows. Again, on a human level, we begin to get pieces of this and need to think through this. If I put an ice cream cake in front of my children, I have determined that they're going to enjoy themselves. Right? They will. And you know what? They're going to cooperate fully in their enjoyment, aren't they? We see this on a human level at times. Determinism, determining an outcome, is not necessarily restricting freedom at all. God never restricts Pharaoh's freedom. It's not as if Pharaoh's got his hands tied behind his back and God's twisting his arm to do what he wouldn't do normally. But God is moving the circumstances and using those circumstances, hardening Pharaoh's heart such that Pharaoh does what Pharaoh wants to do, but in the end we say that God has determined it and is, is right to say that he's hardened Pharaoh's heart. Now you can work out of this in a thousand ways, but what you've got to do is take a scissors and cut out all those times that it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And if you're happy to have holes in your Bible that you've cut out, then that's what you're going to have to live with. But he said it. God hardened Pharaoh's heart and Pharaoh is held accountable doing exactly what he wants to do. I just don't see that that's just and fair for God to do that. Well, if we're listening, if we're tracking with God, then that's exactly the objection that comes. Notice Romans chapter 9 and verse 14, where this very objection is raised in light of the truth. Romans chapter 9 and verse 14. Plow with me a little bit longer here. This is crucial. There is an attack here at Pharaoh's response to God and God's hardening his heart that is crucial to our understanding of Scripture and faithfulness to the ways of God. But plow with me a little bit longer here. The objection is God is unjust. Romans 9 and verse 14, the Apostle Paul picks up this very idea. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. What am I supposed to take home from this? Verse 16, it's the mercy of God that counts. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Come on, Paul, you're supposed to get us out of this dilemma, not keep us in this dilemma. He just keeps going. Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who resists the will of God? What glory is there in a God who just has wind-up toys that he controls? That's what one of you is going to say. Verse 20, but who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? You see, there's an answer that Scripture gives to the determination and the sovereignty of God. It's just not an answer that we naturally like. His answer is, who are you to talk back to God? 
Verse 20, shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Amen. He does. To the very ones God hardens, in the context of Romans 9 through 11, the Israelites, notice what he says in 1021. To the very ones whose hearts God hardens, 1021, he says to Israel, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. It's both and. At every turn, Pharaoh willingly refused to submit to the sovereignty of God. He refused to let God be God. And he was held accountable for it. And so will we be for the very same thing. Never will anyone stand before the face of God and say, You hardened my heart. We choose to disobey God. But he is in control. So taken as a whole, we are instructed in most dramatic fashion by these plague narratives that God alone is God. And because he is pure, and because he is truth, and because he is love, and because he is sovereign, God cannot share his glory with any other God, because there are no other gods. Since he's not an idolater, God must and will magnify the glory and splendor of his name, and will tolerate no other gods before him or beside him. The question then for us is, are you on his team? You've got to be on the side of this sovereign God. It's not enough to know about Him. The Bible declares from cover to cover that God's people are those who have, in humble submission, obeyed the Lord as the Lord and Savior. God's people spend their lives magnifying His holiness and the majesty of who He is. And those who are not God's people spend their lives resisting His will and seek to maintain their own autonomy. Now that's in us all. It clings to us. But there is a fundamental distinction between those who are idolaters and those who are worshipers of the true God. Those who worship the true God know that He is God alone, that He is sovereign, and they spend their lives seeking to honor Him as such. Those who are idolaters look for gods to tell them what they want to hear. Whose side are you on? Now we may not always consciously raise a fist in the face of God as did Pharaoh. But like Pharaoh, we are all born in a state of alienation from the Lord. We do not by nature acknowledge or appreciate God's singular right to command our choices and our destiny. There's not a person here who doesn't know what I'm saying. There are things God says we don't want to hear. We don't like it by nature. It's tough. And so like Pharaoh, we're born stiff-necked and willful and we harden our hearts against the Lord. We've got to land on this for a moment. If you are here and do not know the Lord as your Savior, then you are in a place like Pharaoh and in danger someday of coming to that point where God begins to harden your heart. He will not do this against your will. He will not do this as if you're a puppet on the end of strings. It will be something that you desire. But here's the frightening part. There can be a day when you embrace a hard heart. You want to be hard to the things of God. Don't go there. There's a river flowing with some power, and you're on a canoe, and you're enjoying this day, 
And there's a warning that comes from the banks. Turn around. There's danger ahead. You've got to hear my word. I know it's fun out there on that river, but you've got to turn around your canoe and get to the shore. And you ignore it. And you put it off. Say, I, I can turn around anytime I want here, but I'm enjoying this ride. But then you come to a certain place in the river where the power of the river takes away your ability to turn around. And you're going over the falls. I don't know in the sovereignty of God how that works or where any individual is at, but if you do not know the Lord as your Savior, there can well be a day when you cross the point of no return. And you'll love it that way. And you'll go right to your destruction, clinging to a hard heart. Don't go there. The only answer is to go back, as it said in Romans chapter 9, to what? Not to, is God just? Is this fair? Is this right? As if we stand in judgment upon the ways of God, the answer is to silence our mouths and say, God will be God. What are we to do? What Paul calls us to do is to cling to the mercy of God. Instead of judging Him, what we need to do is to come to Him and plead for His mercy. And if you come today with a hard heart, and perhaps you've got everybody fooled, but you know you're not regenerate. You know you've not come to saving faith. Don't take that hard heart to a grave. You will regret that day for all eternity. Turn by pleading for the mercy of God. He alone can soften your heart. Plead that he will. He is the only Savior, and He is the Savior of all. We learn this in these plagues. There is a demonstration of God's power over creation. It's not only an issue of Pharaoh's heart, but it's an issue of the great power and sovereignty of God over all things that we read here. We find in this account that God is the ruler of creation. He brought the world into being, and He can shut it down by the word of His power. And that fits into the overall scheme of redemption. God wields the sword of death and judgment, but he can also reverse the course of death as he chooses. And he does that over and over again throughout Scripture, and particularly here in these accounts. There is, in fact, an empty grave that proves that the reversal of death has begun. There will be the death of the firstborn, to which we trust to look soon. But there will be, in a greater and fuller sense in Revelation the death of the firstborn Son of God. But He becomes not only the one who is covered by darkness and death, He becomes the one who splits the grave and walks through on the other side in life. The great reversal has begun. God doesn't simply save individuals. God saves everything. He saves all of creation itself. He said, let there be light and brought it all into being. And he has said as well that he will defeat death, and he has. There's an empty grave that shows that the reversal has started. And that reversal is going to continue as he calls out people to himself and grants to them mercy and saving grace. And then one day, as the Scriptures teach us, there will be more plagues in this world. You read the book of Revelation and you look at the seals and the trumpet judgments, and what do you find there? Hail! 
destroying a third of the vegetation, the sea turning to blood, the sun being darkened, locusts and hail and thunderstorms. Guess where we are? We're right back to Exodus. In fact, Exodus was just a pinprick in this judgment that God will bring on this world. And then we come to the bowls, and we find an epidemic of sores, and we find seas, rivers, and springs turning to blood, and we see that the sun is darkened, and lightning, and thunder, and earthquakes, and spirits looking like frogs visiting the earth, chapter 16. Where are we at? We're going to come right back to Exodus. We're coming right back to these plagues. This earth is going to be purged by Christ Exodus is only the foreshadowing of the final cataclysmic judgment as we read in Romans 8, verses 18 and following. And in the end, where will it all come to conclusion? Every knee will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ as the whole earth is brought into His redemption purposes. Everyone will be either with Him or against Him. We'll either walk through the Red Sea of life or we will be drowned in it. The sheep or the goats or whatever other image we use. For those of us then who are moving toward that day and rejoicing in the Lordship of Jesus Christ and moving to live with Him for eternity and bow the knee willingly, our task is just like Moses and Aaron's to realize this world's bent against us. There's a judgment that's taking place. But we, like them, are to walk by faith. Everything seemed to be against Moses, but Moses spins on his heel and walks out of Pharaoh's palace that day. And by this point in time, believe me, there's one person convinced that God is God, and that's Moses. And he never turns back. He knows the power to stop the storm and the locusts and all is not his power, but is the power of God working through him as he has submitted to the will of his Father. What Moses needed to do was to obey and to trust, and that is what we need to do. We need to walk in faith, which is the evidence of things not seen. So as we journey through this life, we're like little children walking through a short passage of woods, and we're scared to death to walk through there. It's frightening to know what's behind those trees and those woods. It looks scary. And we say, I don't want to go in there. But on the other side of the woods, we hear the voice of our Father calling. It's okay. Follow me through the shadow of death. Follow me through to the other end of the woods. I'm on the other side. It's faith. We don't see Him, but we can hear His voice. There's an evidence that He's there. It's His voice. And most often through history, that voice is pretty silent. It speaks in the skies. But there's no audible voice to hear. But then there are times like this section in Exodus when God yells on the other side of the woods. And He says, I'm there. I will show you that I am there. I can control the universe. I'm there on the other side of the woods. Trust my voice. Follow me through. And as He yells to let us know of His presence, we walk in faith when that voice goes silent. And we walk through those woods in faith, knowing that he is on the other side. That is what Moses is learning to do. I can't talk to Pharaoh. I've got no words. I've got no power. I'm not the guy. I can't do that. But he's trusted the voice of God calling him from the other side of the woods. And he's now 
negotiating with Pharaoh. In fact, he's telling Pharaoh what to do. And so it is those who live by faith that fear this world the least. Those who know that the voice of God came from that direction right over there, and I'm going to keep following in that direction no matter what is in these woods. Because God is on the other side, and he'll meet me there. He's the God not only of a few people who happen to turn to him, he is the God of heaven and earth, and he will bring all into his redemptive purposes. You're either with him or you're against him. Plead for his mercy that you're with him and come into his embrace as he welcomes you. Let's bow for prayer. Our Father, we realize we've stood on holy ground today. And there's, on a human level for me, a tremendous frustration to make so dull what is so glorious. The human words struggle so hard in our time so limited to really sense the power that you displayed in Egypt. The power that you displayed at the grave of Jesus. But God, despite all our limitations of time and ability and our cold hearts, I pray that we would sense that you really did these things. That this took place in time, space, mass continuum. That it was the announcing of your voice on the other side of the wood. And I pray that we as the children will truly come to know you by knowing that you've done these things. God, may there be no child among us. May there be no person among us who is turned off to your glories by the weakness that they see in a preacher, by the weakness that they see in a parent, by the weakness they see in a teacher or an older child. May we look to the glories of our great God and know that you are the ruler of heaven and earth and the savior of your people. And may we hear your voice and walk. God, if there's anyone who needs your mercy for salvation, I plead that you would open their heart and soften it. Bring them to saving faith this day as we end our service together. In Christ's name I pray.